All right. Well, this morning we're going to be looking in uh, the gospel account of, of Luke. And we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 10. And we're going to be looking uh, verses 25 through 37. The parable of what is commonly known as the Good Samaritan. Starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before you this morning asking that you would send your spirit and power to fill this place, to Grant us all understanding. Lord, I pray that you would be with me. That your word would be proclaimed faithfully, accurately, purely, God, for the edification of your people, for the building up of your saints, O oh God. I pray that Christ is exalted this morning. I pray that we are, are convicted of any sin, that we are led to repentance, Lord. And if there be anyone here this morning who does not know you or is unsure if they are saved, who question this great question, what must I do to have eternal life? God, I pray for their souls this morning and ask that you would work in them. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May your word be proclaimed now, and may it be you, Holy Spirit, that speaks, not me. Lord, we, we thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for this opportunity so undeserved on my part, God, to be up here to proclaim your truth. It is by your mercies. It is by your grace. We ask these things in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Best-selling author and megachurch pastor Rick Warren 
recently said in an interview, we need a reformation, not of creeds, but deeds. Pastor Warren continued that a new movement is underway in the church, shifting the emphasis from doctrinal issues to services in the world. It's time to stop debating, he says, the Bible, and start doing it. This is the new reformation I'm praying for, end quote. During the last few years and months, uh, we have been seeing an a outcry for social reforms. And with this, some Christian groups, such that those who maybe um, identify more so with like the social gospel, which um, if you're unaware what the social gospel is, it's merely a, uh, it's a prominent late 19th century, early 20th century um, intellectual movement. And, and those who adhere to it only wish to apply Christian ethics to social problems. So things such as uh, um, poverty and poor nutrition, inequality, education, alcoholism, crime, and war. These things are on the forefront mind of, of those who adhere to the social gospel. Um, these things are, are emphasized while things such as doctrine of sin, salvation, heaven, and hell are downplayed. You might recognize the mantra as Pastor Rick Warren alludes to, deeds over creeds. Orthopraxy, correct practices or behavior over orthodoxy, correct teaching or doctrine. And sermons that emphasize going out and being a better you, being a better person, and making the world a better place is the duty of the Christian. And in the midst of these social injustices that flood our society, the question is raised, should not the church be involved in such things? Is this not the mission of the church? And why I want to make clear that I, I do not condemn anyone here for being concerned or being involved over social issues and desiring to make the world a better place. But I have personally talked with many people, especially recently, that have the notion that this is what Jesus was all about. This was the purpose of him coming. And, this is the, and the purpose of me bringing this up and opening with this is because the passage that we will be looking at today is commonly referenced for, for such claims that this is the purpose of the church. This is the purpose in which Christ came. The parable of the uh, Good Samaritan, in which we all are very familiar with, it is a passage that seems very straightforward and easy to comprehend. Uh, however, Though there be very tangible teachings in this text, there are some deeper, more perplexing uh, implications of it. And the more one understands the gospel and one understands the soteriology, the, the doctrine of how one is saved, becomes saved, it becomes a bit perplexing when looking at this text. It has been, over the years, both overanalyzed as well as oversimplified. Now, to give you a little bit of, of context 
of, of this text, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's on his way to Jerusalem because he is going to the cross. In chapter 9, Jesus sends out 12 disciples, his 12 disciples to proclaim the kingdom to the surrounding cities, verse, chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. In chapter 10, this consists mostly, which is the chapter we're in this morning, consists mostly of evangelism. Jesus is sending out 72 other followers to go out and proclaim the gospel ahead of him, chapter 10, 1 through 12. And woes are pronounced to unrepentant cities, chapter 10, 13 through 16. And then you have the return of the 72 rejoicing in their report, verses 17 to 24. So we see that the last two chapters of, of the book, or chapter 9 and chapter 10, have a heavy emphasis on evangelism. And that's where we're picking up today in our text. And we're going to start here in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this passage parallels that of Matthew 22, 34 through 40, and Mark chapter 12, 28 through 34. Uh, some have said this is probably the same instances, but most scholars, most um, theologians do not believe that that is true. Because <clears throat> where both a lawyer and a scribe ask him which is the greatest commandment, there are some differences in, in how Jesus responds to them, but overall, it's the very same gist. Um, now, it was very common for the first century Jew at this time to have eternity on their mind and to inquire about the laws and how one would uh, attain eternal life. It was such a great concern for the Jewish people, and and though the nation of Israel has gotten a lot wrong in the Old Testament, it's gotten a lot wrong in the New Testament, one thing that is a pressing concern, as you see when you go through the Scripture, is their concern for eternal life. And don't misunderstand me, there's been many cultures and societies in, in the last thousands of years who have had this same emphasis, who has had this same desire of, of what happens after this life. What is left for us when we die? And this is more than I can say of today's society, is it not? You know, it, it's very sad that we spend so much time in thinking about our careers in the future, our, our children's uh, college and their futures and, and our retirement and, and investing in that and enjoying our golden years, as they say. We put so much emphasis on the here and now when this life is but a breath, Psalm 39.5, especially in comparison with eternity. And if one gives no thought, worry, or concern about eternity, then they will give no thought, worry, or concern about where they spend it. This man was a a lawyer, strike one. Uh, Just kidding. Uh, This simply means that he was an expert uh, in the the Jewish laws, and the Jewish religion. His desire to test our Lord here implies that he already knew the answer, and he's testing Jesus to see if if Jesus' answers lines up to um, his high standard of of what it means to inherit eternal life. 
Now, this testing could have been out of hostility towards Jesus, as some of the motives were of those who tested him from the religious leaders. But the text doesn't say one way or the other. What we can denote is that he had a typical Jewish mindset of a works-based righteousness. Notice the, the human aspect in what he asks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is uh, not that all different from people and, and the religions of the world today. We have within ourselves a, a built-in inclination of works, of, of orthopraxy, the right behavior. What must I do? We desire a, a recipe or, or a checklist to, to prove that we are good and worthy and, and reject anything that tells us differently. Even non-religious people have a code of ethics in which they justify themselves as good. We see here the pride in this lawyer as he asks this question, where he's not interested in the Lord's teaching or what he has to say, but only that he be affirmed in his own belief and understanding of what he believes to be true. Many today will go from church to church, teacher to teacher, pastor to pastor, not designed to hear what the Bible says or teaches as true, but only hear what they believe to be true. Instead of examining teachings against the word of God, they will examine them against their feelings and preconceived notions. This is the arrogance and pride of sinful man. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In response to the question, Jesus most likely knowing who this man is and, and what he does, points him to answer, um, points to him to the answer to the question that he was already aware of. And he, he points him where? To the law. As I said before, I believe that this text and, and the surrounding texts around it are, are very evangelistic. And Evangelism 101, what do you do when you're talking to people about the gospel? Well, first, they must be aware of their need of a Savior. Therefore, you point them to the law, the law of God. And the law of God is God's standard of good, not ours. And as we already noted, uh, Jesus' common question to to eternal life was this, what must one do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus points to the law because he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, Matthew 5, verse 17. And as eternal son of God, he is certainly not going to contradict what the word of God says, but affirm it. And with the Old Testament being the ultimate authority to the Jewish people, and this man being an expert of the law, Jesus invites his interpretation which differs from the other parallel texts to this. In the other instances, Jesus just tells, gives the, uh, the command of, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But most likely knowing and understanding his prideful motive, he turns the question back to him. Surely you, an expert of the law, can tell me. And so the Lord responds, verse 27, and he answered, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, is this lawyer, this expert in the law, uh, giving an answer here, a profound knowledge or insight? Not really. He is simply repeating what is known in Judaism as the Shema. And the Shema, which translates simply as, as hear, not, not hear physically, but hear with your ears. Uh, and the basis of the Shema is found in, in, in uh, Deuteronomy 6, chapter Chapter 6, verse 5, which says, starting in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, this Lord did not add anything by putting mind in there. Um, the Hebrew word here for um, might expresses an idea of totality, so that would be encompass one's mind. And included, included in the Shema is Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Again, this is not profound and is the exact response Jesus gives in Matthew 22 and Mark 12. The Shema was recited by faithful practicing Jews twice a day at this time and of practicing Jews today. It was said once in the morning and once in the evening. Twice a day this, this was recited. And, uh, and the purpose of it is that these are not necessarily the greatest commands in the sense of them being more important, but they encompass all of the laws of God. As Jesus says in Matthew 22, 40 of this, on these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. So if one can truly love God and his neighbor in this way, they will meet and fulfill the law of God completely. So that's the idea behind the Shema. It's not necessarily a separate command that is above everything else, but what they, what they teach is basically... If you can do these things in the laws and prophets of, of all the laws of all the Old Testament is encompassed in that statement. Love God, love people, as it is even summarized down even more. And in verse 28, Jesus responds to him. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus affirms that the answer provided is correct. Again, corroborating with, with the word and the word here correctly means right properly or properly, which we get the word orthodox from. And what is commonly missed is the last part of Jesus' response here. Do this and you will live. Seems pretty straightforward, but what Jesus is actually doing is quoting from Leviticus 18.5 here, which reads, You shall therefore keep my statutes, and my rules, if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. This use of Leviticus 18.5 makes things a bit complicated, actually, because it would appear that Jesus is advocating a works-based salvation, which we know from studying the New Testament, especially the epistles of Paul, that that cannot be. Then again, 
Jesus must affirm what the scriptures clearly teach. And by using Leviticus 18.5 here, there is no other interpretation. In order to live, one must obey. Do this, receive this. We must also keep in mind who Jesus is speaking to, an expert in the Old Testament law, very familiar with the Jewish writings. And the reason for Jesus quoting Leviticus 18 here is to affirm the answer the Lord has given, but I believe it has a deeper implication than that, as we will see later as we will circle back around to this. So Jesus tells them, do these things, you are correct, do these things and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Desiring to justify himself. Once again, we see the pride of this sinful man, more so in this religious sinful man. The desire to justify oneself, do it in your own strength, is common in rebellious man. In his sinful state, man does not see himself guilty or in need of any type of salvation, but will always justify him or herself. Notice that the lawyer completely bypasses the whole loving God part, the, the Shema part that says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength. He, I got that. I do that. That's fine. But make something clear to me. Who's my neighbor? just want to make sure we're on the same page as my neighbor. I understand the whole God thing. I do love God with all my heart. I get that. I, I do that already. He has no concern in this area. In his mind, there is no issue. This, again, is a sad state of man's pride. And, oh, how many conversations I have personally had with colleagues, friends, family, and even complete strangers who have said these words, who justify themselves, who have said that I'm good with God or that God is good with me. In that area, no, 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 I understand. I know I don't go to church or, you know, whatever. But I'm, me and God are cool. Literally, that's what I verbatim have heard. Me and, me and the big guy, we're cool. We're good. They, they, might, they will admit that, of course, they're not perfect, but they are by no means wicked or unrighteous, prideful, deceitful, murderous, slanderous, adulterous, and evil. In fact, if there be anyone here today or anyone that is listening to this sermon who does not know Christ, I'm willing to bet that as a list of descriptions was read off, you do not categorize yourself in any one of them. Man is very good at justifying himself. The first century Jews had created for themselves a, a man-made laws and, and tradi traditions that they would add to God's laws and treat actually over God's laws. And they do this today. Differing ideas on uh, how one identified someone as their neighbor was among these. These included and limited, uh, and limited a neighbor as merely one who was of the same clan as you. If they're of the same clan as you, then that's your neighbor. 
or affiliation of maybe a religious party. You're a Pharisee, you're a Sadducee, and you see another Pharisee, that's your neighbor. Or even distance. Distance of, of where you resided. Sorry, Bob, but you're about one foot too far for you to be considered my neighbor. I don't have to help you, nor love you. And though it is true that Leviticus 19.18, identifying one's neighbor as a fellow Jew, verse 34 of that same exact chapter states, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. See, one can easily justify themselves in comparison to the word of God if they can only reinterpret its meanings. In response to this man's justification of himself, Jesus responds with the parable that we're very familiar with, and I'm going to go through um, that parable now. Starting in verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now, we must remember as we look into this, we are dealing with a parable. And a parable is something to to. Uh, emphasize a, a truth is a story told to emphasize a truth so this did not happen um, and I say that because I, I don't want to go into too much depth as to maybe the mindset of the priest or the thoughts of the Levite or or what the man was doing on that road by himself and and what exactly was he robbed of this was a story that did not actually happen but a parable uh, these people did not literally exist, even though there, I mean, there were Levites and priests. But we must also be careful not to uh, over-allegorize this parable, which has been done, uh, I guess, especially from the early church fathers, who would say that the Samaritan was Jesus and, and uh, the inn is the church and the payment is his blood. Uh, that's... That's not, not how the original hearers of this parable would have understood this or would have heard it. I don't believe that's what Jesus was teaching here. And no, we can glean some implica implications of that, um, as well as applications from this parable. We must stay within the original meaning and purpose of our Lord's telling of it. This man, though it is not stated, would most likely be imagined and thought of as a Jew because who he was talking to were fellow Jewish men. But it's interesting that Jesus did not identify him. Now, though this be a parable, there is an actual road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it was indeed a, a well-traveled route. And from my understanding, though, it was the equivalent of what we would call our 
are back alleyways that you didn't travel by yourself or at night. Um, it was a dangerous, dangerous path. With jagged cliffs and rocky terrain, it, it was ideal spot for robbers to raid travelers. Uh, the distance from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles. And in terms of elevation, Jerusalem is 2,557 feet above sea level, and Jericho is negative 825 feet, which is a difference approximately of 1,732 feet. So when traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, you did actually go down. <clears throat> this man is robbed and beaten, and the idea here is that the severity of his injuries implied that he was basically left for dead. And if not attended to, was, was as good as dead. The first to happen upon him was a priest. And Jesus indicates that the priest was going down. As I said before, I, I don't want to get bogged down with what these characters were doing and thinking as they were fictional characters, but some have argued that thinking the man dead, the priest and Levi desired to avoid him so not to defile themselves by touching a dead body in accordance to the law, Numbers 5.12, and therefore rendering them unclean to perform their religious duties. However, they were traveling down from Jerusalem, which means they were traveling away from the temple, which means that they had most likely already fulfilled their temple duties. And it may be that Jesus here is eliminating any excuse that one might have for these two men to purposely avoid this man in need. The religious, the priests who would make intercessions on the people's behalf and whose highest duty was to offer sacrifices would surely be one that would be expected to stop and help this man. In the same way, a Levi who was the chosen tribe of Israel to, to partake and help in the temple duties was would be one who also thought to be helped this man because uh, they were grouped along with sojourners and dependent on the ties and generosity of Israel to survive. Basically, you have the clergy here not, um, not only not helping this man, but purposely going out of their way to avoid him. And Jesus' hearers would have expected the priest or Levite to be the hero of this story, but but if not them, then surely a, a fellow Jewish layman. Jesus instead here introduces a Samaritan. Now to the Jews, the Samaritans were uh, hated enemies of the Jews. They were a group of people mixed with both Jewish and, and pagan ancestry. They were despised by the Jewish people, called dogs, and, and likewise despised by them. And we can see the the social distinction in, and between these two in Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Do you guys remember that story? You know, his uh, disciples come back and they're surprised that he's talking to a Samaritan woman. This shocked them. And if we look back at the very last chapter, chapter 9 of our text this morning, we will see that the surrounding Samaritan villages that rejected Jesus they rejected him on the basis because he was going to go through there to Jerusalem. And therefore, they said, you know what? If you're not going to stay with us and if your desire is to go to Jerusalem, we don't want anything to do with you. And what is John and James' response to that? They say, basically, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them and obliterate them? Basically. We can see the animosity between these two. 
To call a Jew a Samaritan was a great insult. And we see this in, in John chapter 8, verse 48, when the Jews tell Jesus, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It was a double insult. Being called demon-possessed was on the same level of being called a Samaritan to a Jew. For Jesus to use a Samaritan to be the hero of the story was a big culture shock to its hearers. Now, the Samaritan comes up on, on this and this left for dead man and, and has compassion on him, the text tells us. It's the opposite reaction that of the priest and Levite. And this word compassion means more than just felt sorry for or felt guilty for. This word in the original language means to have a deep feeling of sympathy. This sympathy is followed by action, and he begins to take care of them. He bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine, which were used also for medicinal purposes, and set him on his own animal. All these comforts were at the expense of the Samaritan. And notice that the Samaritan shows compassion on this man without first asking if he qualified as his neighbor or finding out first what he did to get himself in that state. This parable has a deeper truth than just be nice to all people, but we would do well to remember and be reminded through this parable that our acts of love and compassion are not reserved only for those we like to love or those that are easy for us to love. Or those who may be of the same political party as us. I had to throw that one in there. But we have been saved and, and transformed by the Holy Spirit. And we do well at, to do what Paul commands in Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are the household of faith. And this is done not out of religious obligation, but out of true heartfelt compassion. To see the extent of the Samaritan's care, he, he then brings him into an inn and provides provision for him there to be cared for. He takes care of him at the inn, and then the, the all night, you can, you can imagine him being by the bedside all night taking care of this man. And then he gives the innkeeper two denarii, which is equivalent to two days' worth of wages, but would be enough for this man to stay in the inn for several days. The Samaritan doesn't say, this is all I'm giving, you do with them once this is, moved, this is used up. Once this is done, he's on his own. I'm out of here. I've done more than my share. I've done more than enough. But he says, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He leaves this man with an open account, a, a blank check, as it, will, as it were. And it is obvious that the Samaritan's greatest concern here is this man's well-being. He essentially says, whatever it takes, I'll pay it. Just make sure he gets better. This love he shows him is, is sacrificial and without limits. This is the extent and capacity in which true love loves with. And as 
there any in our lives that we can say that we love like this? That we love so sacrificially like this? Now, I know that some of us will say, well, yes, I, I love my, my wife or my spouse or my, my children like this. Well, even then, I don't know. My, my youngest busted open his ear a couple, weeks ago, or late, uh, a couple weeks ago, and we just slapped some super glue on that sucker. <laughs> I ain't paying that hospital bill just because you can't properly bounce on the ball. <laughs> ain't doing it. But even when we show sacrificial love for those who are close to us, we do it. Why? Because they're important to us. Because they mean so much to us. This Samaritan did not even know this man's name. Never seen him before. This love that the Samaritan shows is exactly how we love ourselves. And that's the truth. There's one person that we do love like this naturally, and that is ourselves. We naturally look after ourselves. We naturally take care of ourselves. We naturally give up any resources for our comfort and well-being. And that is the point. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then asked, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer responds, verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus takes this lawyer's question and flips it with this parable. MacArthur says in this text, The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus makes the point to talk about who is neighborly. Not a question of quality of one's neighbor, but the quality of one's love. End quote. This lawyer wasn't even concerned about the extent of one's love, but only concerned with the extent of who it is he must love. Through the parable, Jesus shows the extent of who one's neighbor is, and to the extent of how one must love them. The lawyer is forced here to admit that the one who proved to be a neighbor was the Samaritan, which he couldn't even bring himself to say. Notice that. He says, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't bring himself to, to say that it was a Samaritan who was the hero of this parable. Jesus then gives the command to him to go and do likewise. Now, as we reflect on this passage, we must ask ourselves, what is our Lord teaching us here? Now, as I said before, there are many that, that look to this passage, passage and declare, see, Jesus didn't teach a, a religion. He didn't, he didn't give us doctrines and creeds to be followed. All, basically, Jesus came here just to tell us be a better person. Love. Jesus echoes the Beatles. All you need is love. <laughs> and that's kind of the idea when they pull this passage out. And I have had it, you know, the reason 
why I chose this passage this morning is because it was recently brought out because someone used it to say, look, it wasn't about teaching a religion. It wasn't about that. Jesus didn't come. He came to show a better way. He came just to, just to tell us to love one another, and that's it. But is that all that Jesus is saying here? Is he teaching us a, a works-based salvation in which simply culminates in love? Are we to walk away from this parable saying, and walk away from this sermon thinking, okay, I am to go and do. I am to love. That is how I get eternal life. After stating the Shema and the means in which one can have eternal life, Jesus replied with quoting Leviticus 18.5. I'm going to circle back around to that now. Jesus quotes Leviticus 18.5, Do this and you will live. In this verse, God commands His covenant people to absolute obedience. The only other echoes of this verse in the Old Testament occurs three times. The first one is in Nehemiah 9.29, which says, And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. But they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. The other two occurrences of this verse being quoted in the Old Testament is in, uh, both happen in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18.9 says, Of the man who walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous and he shall surely live, declares the Lord. And then skip forward to Ezekiel 20, verse 11. I gave them my statutes and made them known, uh, made to them my, known my rules by which if a person does them, shall live. What is interesting about each of these references to Leviticus 18.5 by Nehemiah and Ezekiel is the context in which the verse is referenced. The re uh, each time this verse is referenced, it is always an indictment of Israel for their inability and refusal to obey. Every time 18, uh, Leviticus 18.5 is referenced in those three passages, it is always in cursing Israel for their disobedience, for their inability and lack of obedience to God's commands. Leviticus 18.5 reveals God's standard in which one has life, and the prophet's use of it reveals that Israel had not nor could ever satisfy this standard. Jesus here is following the logic of the prophets concerning Leviticus 18.5. Because it is true. If one does these things, if one loves God truly with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul, with all of his strength, and he shows that same love as himself to his neighbors, then he will have eternal life. But as we see the, the prophets of old quoting Leviticus 18.5, man cannot do this. 
in the beginning of this parable, we noted the pride of this lawyer. In naming this greatest commandment, he arrogantly believed that he was innocent of breaking it. Whenever Jesus referred to the law as a standard of goodness, a religious Jew at this time saw this as a good thing. What must I do to internal, have eternal life, Jesus? Well, what does the law say? Oh, good, because I am a uh, law keeper. And then Jesus would expound upon it. And it would, they would get destroyed. This parable um, parallels with the conversation between Jesus and, and the rich young ruler, does it not? Which is in just eight chapters from now. And in that parable, what is the, or not parable, in that um, conversation between the rich young ruler and Jesus, the ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to have an, an inherent internal life? What does Jesus say to him? Obey the commands. What is his response? Good. I've done this. I've done this since my youth. I've done all these things. I'm good. Jesus says, you lack one thing. Sell or give away all that you have to the poor and follow me. The man walks away saddened. Now, what is Jesus doing? Is he adding another command? Is he adding something more above the commands that this man must do? No. He says, you believe you follow all the commands? Okay, let's start with number one. You shall have no other God before me. Give away all your money. No. Idolatry. You failed on the first one. The presupposition of the lawyer is that he really believed he obeyed God's command until Jesus' parable. If this is what it means to truly love one's neighbor, he finds himself guilty of not obeying and therefore not fulfilling the command that leads to eternal life. If do this and live and gets you eternal life, then not doing this means the opposite. This lawyer knows that I can't love like that, especially an enemy, especially a, a, a Samaritan. I refuse to love a Samaritan. I can't love like that, Jesus. You and I can't love like that. And Jesus gives him the impossible task Go and do likewise. He does the same to him as a rich young ruler. Who's my neighbor? Well, you think you follow God and his commands and you love your neighbor? All right, this is how, who your neighbor is and this is how you love. Go and do likewise. <laughs> this would bring about despair, which is exactly what the law does and is the point of the law is to bring men to despair not only is this text not teaching us a lesson about how to love others properly but rather is teaching us that we cannot love others properly in and of ourselves man is unable to love god with all of his heart soul and mind and strength and his neighbor as himself we, like Israel, will fail at this. We, like Israel, cannot do anything to inherit 
eternal life in and of ourselves. Bringing one to the law and seeing that they fall short are brought to the end of their pride, their works, their strivings, and themselves. And this is exactly what Jesus does to the self-righteous lawyer. This is exactly what God's word does to the self-righteous sinner. If then there is no hope for man in this old covenant of works, what then are we left with? The same as the prophets had, a hope of a new covenant. There are two, and I didn't even know this as I was studying it, and, and I looked and, and found out there are two other references in which Leviticus 18.5 is referenced in the New Testament after this. And those passages occur in Romans 10, 4 through 9. Well, it's verse 5, but I would like to read 4 through 9. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does these commandments shall live by them. And skip it down to verse 9. But if you, with your mouth, confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The other reference to Leviticus 18, 5 is in Galatians 3, 11 through 13. And it says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, for it is written curses everyone who is hanging on a tree. This is the hope of the new covenant. For in Christ fulfilled that which was required of us in the old. This is the message of the gospel. We who cannot fulfill the law of God's commands are under his curse and are without hope. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Galatians 2, 4 through 5. God's demand for perfect obedience to his law are fulfilled in Christ's perfect life lived for us. And God's demand for payment for the breaking of his law is also fulfilled in his shed blood for us. This is why the author of Hebrews states Christ saying, The sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. The author goes on in verse 9 and says, He does away with the first in order to establish the second covenant, that is. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now, this command to go and do likewise is, is posed to you and I as believers. I don't want to... to 
take the parable and say, okay, it has no implications for us. It was just teaching us, teaching this lawyer that we can't earn our salvation, that we can't properly love God and properly love our neighbor, so therefore we, we can't gain or glean anything from this parable. But the command to do to go and do likewise is posed to, posed to us this morning. But the difference is, is that we who are in Christ are truly enabled to do this selflessly. It is only then when we are in Christ that our deeds can be pleasing to him. You see, even if this lawyer wanted to be obedient and model this parable and do exactly as a good Samaritan did and, and go find one in need and, and sacrificially give all that he had and, and mimic this parable perfectly, he would still be found wanting. Why? Because his motive would be completely self-centered. Because all he's looking for is his own personal gain of eternal life. And this is the beauty of the gospel and the good works of his people. We do not obtain or lose eternal life based on our deeds. This is, our good deeds are not done out of religious, uh, religious obligation, guilt, or fear, but out of a heart of thankfulness for what has been done for us in Christ. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. Our good deeds are an extension of our gratitude. G.C. Burkauer said, Grace is the essence of theology, and gratitude is the essence of ethics. It is only when we come to right understanding and saving knowledge of the gospel that we can have, truly have, good deeds. And we see that it is not deeds over creeds, but deeds because of creeds. Now, as we come to a, a close, one mistake I can make here today is to assume that those of you here now are truly saved. For there may be some in this very room who stand right now under the wrath and judgment of God Most High. And like the poor man in this parable, you are left dead in your trespasses without hope in yourself. Your religious piety or works like the priest will be of no help to you. Your acts of service or, or how you identify as an American evangelic, evangelical will be of no help to you. Your arrogance will leave you desolate. Your sin will rob you of everything good. And you will die and perish in the stubbornness of your pride if you will not call out for mercy. Call out for grace. Call out to the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Call out to Christ. And for us here who are in Christ, I hope I have not in any way discouraged good deeds here today, but encouraged them in the correct context. God's people who have been saved by His love and mercy in Christ should be characterized by love and mercy. I am, for one, proud of this congregation for the many ways that you all love. I truly am. 
But with that said, I believe we lack greatly in one area of love. The call to love our neighbor extends not only to their physical life, but their spiritual. When we find those who are without Christ, we should look upon them as our neighbors who are in desperate need of our help. I would like to quote from J.I. Packer as we close here, who says, quote, If we ourselves have known anything of the love of Christ for us, and if our hearts have felt any measure of gratitude for the grace that has saved us from death and hell, then this attitude of compassion and care for our spiritual needy fellow men ought to come naturally and spontaneously to us. It is a tragic and ugly thing when Christians lack desire and are actually reluctant to share the precious knowledge that they have with others who are in need of it just as greatly as their own. End quote. The greatest act of love that you and I who are in Christ can extend our fellow men is the sharing of the love of God in Christ through the gospel. This, this is the mission of the church. To share the good news of salvation. To share the gospel of eternal life.